This is The Playbook. Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week where every week, twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, we tape interviews, audio and video with what we think are the most influential leaders in the world. Guests that range from business titans, best-selling authors, professional athletes, actresses, actors, celebrities, four-star generals each week to bring you insights on how to become a better leader. Perhaps you are a leader in a C-suite Fortune 5000 organization. Maybe you're in a Inc. 5000 company. Maybe you're an entrepreneur, solopreneur, intrapreneur. Maybe you're an informal leader on a team or you're just perhaps leading yourself or your family. Every week we curate these conversations to bring you insights from people that have had highs and lows and in 300 interviews, only twice have we taped outside of our Salt Lake City office. The first was with Rachel Hollis down in her office in Austin, Texas. And today we're at SoFi Stadium here in greater Los Angeles with David Metzer. You know him as a serial entrepreneur. He is the author of numerous books, including one today we're going to focus on called Connected to Goodness. Now listen to this. The tagline is Manifest Everything you desire in business and in life. David, welcome to On Leadership. Wow, I didn't know uh, all of these things. This is amazing. It's such an amazing opportunity to talk to you, to have the audience and community that you have, at least get the exposure and awareness to my journey and hopefully some of the dummy tax that I've paid that can assist them to avoid that. You know, I think what I'm most excited about beyond this amazing stadium yeah, that we, you we sucked your you podcast in, in right, <laughs> is your journey. And I'm not sure everyone in our podcast audience globally knows exactly what your journey is. I'd love to invite you to rewind a few decades, share some of the highs sure. and the lows, and we'll get into some of the concepts of this book. Yeah, sure. At a high level, my journey was one of three worlds. I was born into a world of not enough as a victim, hmm. single mom, six kids, uh, and I just wanted to be rich. <laughs> I wanted to buy my mom a house and a car because yeah. any t I was super happy. I have this extraordinary mom that raised six kids. Five of them went to the Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Penn, and Columbia, graduated summa cum laude. So it wasn't just that they got in, went yeah. to graduate schools uh, because my mom believed the fetus wasn't fully developed till after graduate school. It was doctor, lawyer, failure, uh, which made my college decision easy because I went to probably the greatest feeder of schools into graduate schools, Occidental, mm -hmm. of any other college in the nation. But more importantly, I had this mindset of not enough. And I was going to have to fight, lie, cheat, manipulate, and steal to get mine because everything was against me in my mind. And I grew up in this beautiful family with a loving mom, but she would cry when we couldn't afford something. You know, one of the hardest parts of my childhood in that world of not enough, and I still get choked up thinking about it. When I was seven years old, I stole money from my mom's wallet. And that same day, as the universe would have it, we went to the grocery store. My mom didn't have enough money for groceries. That stuck with me for so long. Um, but I worked really hard. My mom taught me consistent, persistent pursuit of my potential. And I learned later on to enjoy it. Uh, at first, I didn't understand I needed to do enjoy it. So it was all about attaching my emotions to an outcome, to win my mom's love with money, to buy a house and a car. And I went on that journey. Initially, it was going to be to be a professional football player. And I took that as far as I could. I played at one of the best Division three colleges football teams ever at Occidental College. And in college, I actually went as a pre-med student, 
But one of my greatest lessons along the way was I went to visit my brother who was a doctor doing his residency at UCLA. I walked into the hospital and I looked around and he, and this is shows you like people, your mindset at 18. I was like, man, I hate hospitals. He's like, what are you talking about? You're in pre-med at one of the best colleges in the country. I was like, yeah, but I hate hospitals. I'm not going to be in a hospital. I'm going to be on the sidelines in the locker rooms helping as a sports physician. Or you so know, you thought. I thought, and he looked at me, and here's the piece of advice that stuck with me. David, you need to be more interested than interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that changed my life. I switched my major to English and poli-sci. I wanted to be in law school. And luckily, of course, going to Occidental, I had my pick of law schools. I chose Tulane yep. because I was more interested. They had the best maritime law program in the nation. They teach common and civil law, international law, and they're known for oil and gas. Yep. And the reason I chose Tulane is I knew that oil and gas litigators made the most money out of law school. It was my best chance to buy my mama house in a car. Ended up graduating, but because my mission, right? I wanted to be rich. I didn't care about the law. I wanted to be rich. I got offered a sales job in, in legal research and I literally chose that job. Despite my mom telling me that the internet was a fad, I chose to be a salesperson because it had a $250,000 comp plan over $150,000 law job. And my mom, another lesson, just because someone loves you doesn't mean they give you good advice. True. And so I took that lesson from there, made a million dollars, nine months out of law school. We exited in 1995 for $3.4 billion. And it set my life in a different trajectory, not just economically, but the idea of living in a world of just enough. I now had confidence that everything was for me. And I see so many people that are optimists that say, life's for me, everything happens for me, not to me. And we hear that all the time. But what I didn't understand is there's still a lot of scarcity in that. When life happens, we use giving to trade or negotiate. Uh, Bob Proctor, one of my mentors, obviously someone that you're well familiar with, he always said, Dave, giving's not a trade or a negotiation. Everything to use a trade in a negotiation, you're still living in scarcity. You're living in a world of just enough for you. You're buying things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go through some hardships as we look. I ended up being CEO of Samsung's phone division, later being hired by Lee Steinberg because of my technology background, not my great sports career, not my law degree, but he saw the future of sports and technology and media. And I had this great background for years at the highest levels in executive. And by the time not only was I a multimillionaire, I had access to everything billionaires could afford to do or more. Super Bowl sidelines, all these amazing things running the most notable sports agency. I ended up losing everything. And that is truly the start of that book. The story of how my ego of having more than enough and not acknowledging it, still appreciating it, but not acknowledging it and asking for help led me in the 17 year journey I have lived today to make more money than I've ever made. I lost over a hundred million dollars. I went bankrupt. I went from 33 homes in San Diego to a rented house, rented furniture and one car, three daughters under 10 and a pregnant wife at the time. And my journey has led me to help empower other people on a mission to teach them what I know, to make a lot of money, to live in abundance, more than enough to help a lot of people and have a lot of fun to create a collective consciousness of happiness. And that's what that book represents to me. 
David, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is just a pervasive sense of vulnerability that you share. I mean, you share the highs and you share the lows and you share the lessons that come from both of those. Let's talk about some of those, if you will. Like me, you have a history of sales as an individual contributor and then as a sales leader. And I was riveted at your passion around how important it is that organizations treat their sales producers well. I want you to speak to the millions of people that are listening and watching today that are sales leaders. What is it that organizations need to do more of to make sure they are not just recruiting, but retaining the lifeblood of their company, which are their sales producers? Be prescriptive. What should companies be doing? Well, understand that sales is about revenue and we want to incentivize and share in the success or performance of that revenue. And so I've created actually five criteria that I think help people not only recruit, but retain the best sales talent. So I actually do things a little bit different. You know, we're going to give you bonus and incentives for sales, but clearly not only define how you're paid for doing sales, but also help you maximize the comp plan. Because I take accountability for my comp plan that if I have aligned the incentives in my comp plan with what I feel will be most profitable, why wouldn't I want every one of my salespeople to maximize the comp plan? Yep. So I actually am one of the few people that take time to teach values of gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and effective communication in alignment with these incentives of how we create the most abundance, the most value. I also spend a lot of time helping and assisting and empowering them to articulate the quantitative value to exceed what we're asking for. I see a lot of sales leaders that they take all the necessary steps to recruit great salespeople, but they let them on their own. They just assume that they know or can quantifiably articulate the value of what we do to exceed what we're asking for. I call that the 120 rule. So some of the things that are overlooked in not only recruitment and retention is not just sales, because I think all great sales leaders somehow articulate, hey, you can make a lot of money here, <laughs> right? And that's what entices them in. But very few do the other four. One, engagement and accessibility. Those are incentivized in my business as a salesperson. In, in fact, everyone in my business is incentivized because everyone in my business is a salesperson. They should all be looking to introduce options, opportunities, and touches of favor internally at our company and externally with all the people in our community. And so one is how engaged are you and accessible? I have some uh, employees that are extremely accessible, but they're not quite up to snuff on the potential of their engagement. I have others that are huge engagement, but they're not that accessible. And so I teach and empower both of those as an incentivized program. I actually give a grade card, a GPA, of all five of these things that says, here's where we're at on sales, here's where we're at on engagement and accessibility every month, and then they share in 10% of my net profit for the entire company as a bonus outside of their commission, outside of their salary for every position in the company. The third is to, I call it be a student of the calendar, but it's really about how productive, accessible, and gracious are you with your time. And using those three lenses to evaluate not only the activity you get paid for, but the activity you don't get paid for and your sleep, as well as activity you have planned and activity you don't have planned. So I don't let anyone say busy or work. Those are two no-nos at my business. There's just activities. And how productive, accessible, and gracious are we in all of those activities? That's why I have unlimited PTO. 
unlimited because you're based off of these incentives. I'm right. going to grade you. And if you're engaged and accessible and some people can do a lot in a little bit amount of time, I'm still making more money off of those people. It's my job to make them more accessible uh, along the way, as long as they let me know when they're not accessible. So those are the first three. The fourth one is an interesting one, lying to yourself. So I believe that no one can lie to me that when you tell me something with good and bad intention that's not true, and this is coming from an expert at bullshit, that means I'm an overseller, backend seller, liar, manipulator, and cheater, genetically and energetically. And the, great, the greatest vulnerability that I have is when I recognize that about myself mm -hmm. and I stopped hating people who pointed that out mm -hmm. to me. And by the way, those were my real friends and real family that yeah. pointed that out to me. They had the courage to give you feedback on those blind spots or those personality traits. And that started me on this journey because I sat on my bed one day hating my mom, hating my dad, hating my best friend and hating my wife because they called me out on being a liar, a cheater, manipulator, overseller, and back end seller. And I realized I hated myself because I was one. Uh, and so this lying to myself is a really big one. And so I want to bonus people that try their best to be accountable and vulnerable enough to tell me when they screw up. I even have given a dummy tax award to somebody that has admitted something that they completely screwed up on that's going to have a great impact in the long run to make other people feel comfortable making mistakes. Uh, David, take this theme a little further get really tactical when it comes to sales. So yes. people that are listening that are sales producers, individual contributors, awesome. what are the two or three or four talents, competencies, mindsets, regardless of industry, quota, seasonality, what do you want everyone who, now of course everyone's in sales, but the people who truly are commissioned sales yes. people, what do you want them to revisit and relearn? And things have changed over the years and I am, a scientist about this. So let me get really granular. Number one, the first qualifier for everyone is an open mind. We have so many people that are at our access today that our first qualification isn't, hey, I'm looking for middle-aged white males who make over $150,000 in the medical field. That was my day of selling way back when. Not anymore. All I'm looking for is an open mind. And I give people three chances to find out if you have an open mind, because I believe that everyone has an open mind some of the time, right? Some people have closed mind the majority of the time. Some people like me have open minds almost all the time. It's actually better to find someone that has an open mind very little of the time when they have an open mind because they have less options mm. and they're easier to sell. So what I do is use a three no rule to qualify an open mind first. I use eye contact, smiling, jokes, open-ended questions. We can find out very quickly if someone has an open mind. If I can't get them also initially, I also am an expert and one of the biggest trainings I do is getting people to get back to me. It's called the get back to me training because we do have such a large size of capability in my sales construct that think about this. The Meaning you're putting the burden of responsiveness on the client, the prospective buyer, to have them recontact the seller. Yeah, so if I've emailed you, social media, all the things that yeah. didn't weren't available when I learned to sell, yeah, right. knocking on doors. Me either. Yeah. Right. So listen to how important this is. If you if I can teach you how to get people to get back to you, if I can you, you just double it, you're going to double your income. It's yeah. math. But yeah. here's what also happens. You get better at sales cuz you get more at bats. So I spend sure, a majority your pipeline will double, your close rate will increase, all of that. And there's so much potential of an audience out there, yeah. especially when we're qualifying open minds and then getting people to get back to us. Now, what do we do when we're actually selling? 
right? Now, now we have qualified people. Like I said, there's a three no rule. On the third time I hit you up if you have a closed mind, all I tell you is, hey, this obviously isn't the right time. If it is, get back to me. And 50% or so of the time, I never hear from them again. You and I both know in sales, that's extremely valuable. And then the people that were interested, but I was talking to them at the wrong time because their cat died or you know life is happening around them. All I've done is accelerated them getting back to me by saying, hey, I'm walking away. If you're interested, call me. Now I've accelerated that. Now, what do we do to sell? Here's the simplest thing I've come up with. There's only two ways to provide value giving people more of what they want or taking away what they don't, right? Giving people what they like, taking away what they don't like. So my sales training beyond this idea of open mind qualification and getting people to get back is simply, what are you doing today in solar? Do you know anything about solar? What are you doing today for football? You know, whatever you're trying to align with and then asking, you know, what do you like about what you're doing today? What don't you like about what you're doing today? Now, if I'm able to ask the next question, I know the impetus falls now onto me of articulating quantitative value to exceed what I'm asking, which is, hey, would it help you if? Would it help you if I lowered your, your uh, energy uh, uh, costs? Would it help you if I sold that property and put you into something more economic? Would it help you if I cured that cancer? Would it help you if I introduced you to this person? Would it help you if I babysat for you, cleaned your car? Whatever it is in whatever position you are to add value to what you need or like and take away maybe something you don't like, both are. Now, if I can articulate and quantify that value to exceed what I'm gonna ask for, and it may just be, hey, do you know anyone that can help me? I love that line. In fact, I had someone come up to me when I was at Collision in Toronto. They're like, you changed my life two years ago. I saw a video, you taught me a question do you know anyone that can help me? Asking for help, believe it or not, or asking is a really big part of sales. Did you know I was doing work with Arthur Blank at Home Depot? And he has four checkouts at Home Depot, garden, consumer, the contractor, and the automatic. One of those four sold more warranties because they do the Best Buy thing, you know, hey, three-year warranty on that appliance, on that tool, and there's huge margins in it. One of those forced checkouts had three times the amount of sales as the other three combined. The automatic one. You know why? Because it asked every time. It took no judgment. Uh, he can't afford it. It was foolproof. It's foolproof. You, yeah. Three times as much. Instead of the judgment based off of an opinion of ignorance and doubt, oh, he's rich enough, he's too poor, mm, he's right. too busy, she ask. looks mean, yeah. I'm lazy. Yeah. Think about that. So I teach people to ask that question. Do you know anyone that can help me? Which is self-inclusive. Yep. And we're giving an opportunity in this idea of my you know, journey we were talking about, not enough, just enough. I ventured into the world of more than enough. It's a gratitude of the future that gives me the faith that when I'm asking for help, that there's more than enough of everything for everyone. So instead of a zero sum game, which the majority of the people sell from, I live in a value add game where not only giving and articulating value is important, but asking for help is equally if not greater of importance because I'm adding value when I ask someone for help internally and externally to help me. Do you know anyone that can help me? I'm looking for an introduction to people that are selling their house, buying their house, insurance, financial literacy. Well, I don't care. You give me any talk, dog food. I can get to utilizing the open-minded open question guide 
anyone in the world as long as I'm capable of getting them to call me back at the time they have an open mind and to articulate quantitative value of what they like or don't like to exceed what I'm asking for. David, one of the many things I think we have in common is we're both voracious readers. Yes. Uh, you're, a, you're a student, a voracious, insatiable learner. You, your book, you quote you know, hundreds of people that you know and have read their books. One of my favorite teachers is a man named Robin Sharma. He wrote the book, amongst many, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. His love most recent book. book was called The Everyday Hero Manifesto. I love this book. It probably is my favorite book I've ever read. Wow. In this book, he talks about how once in his home, he came home from a walk or something, and his journals had gone missing, meaning someone had stolen them. Someone had broken into his home and, and taken his most treasured secrets, crises of faith, his intimate thoughts. Someone had stolen them. But the chapter he called the day my journals went missing. So mindset. It was he had he decided that there must be a reason this has happened. What am I gonna do about it? How am I gonna respond to it? What's my accountability into it? It reminds me of a story you tell in your book. And uh, some of your lows, you had a neighbor that I think uh, treated you poorly. Correct. You lost several million dollars out of the nefarious behavior of a neighbor. But you write one line in your book and you follow up this indication of a neighbor had uh, taken close to $3 million from you. But you wrote a line that said, and part of the problem was you had not been accountable for your own behavior around that. Remember that? I do for sure. <laughs> Will you share that story? Because it just, I read it three times because it reminded me of the Robin Sharma around how you choose to take responsibility for your actions, how you frame things in your mind. What's the lesson? Explain the story. What's the lesson in that? Sure. So I had a neighbor who offered a condo conversion to me, a good friend, not just a neighbor. And my wife even warned me, this sounds too good to be true, which is a lesson to learn in itself. And yet I trusted him and he had in good intention, uh, sold the property without the proper conversion, okay. thinking optimistically it would be done before our deal closed. And the longer it took, the worse it got for me. And then when we got into the transactional problem, the lawsuit, I let my ego and my wife fuel my ego that I had a need to be right. Mm. And throughout the process, far more millions spent on legal action than on the loss. I realized in this process through my own transformation at the same time that I wasn't accountable, that there, I had several opportunities not to attract this into my life not to do the deal. And during the deal, I had several opportunities where I could have backed out of the deal. And I let all these external circumstances give meaning to my past, not aligned with the trajectory of where I wanted to be or better in the future. And that was the lesson of having a mindset is that I was always good in my daily activities of being productive, accessible, and gracious. I always was very good at having an objective or a goal, but I would attach my emotions to that objective or a goal. And what I learned to do, which you read in the book, is to do three different things in the context of the past, the present, and the future. One, I make sure that my past successes, failures, mistakes, void shortages, obstacles, lessons that I've learned are aligned with where I want to be in the future or better. The meaning I give my past is aligned with where I want to be or better, not accelerating into an ego-based consciousness 
everything was stolen to me. I'm punished again. So when I do that, now I can align my intention today in the same trajectory. What do I need to do today considering these life circumstances of this lawsuit or of this you know, loss of mine, journals or money, it doesn't matter, it's all yeah. energy. Yeah. Then who can help me? Who can I help? And how best can I utilize 24 hours today in the trajectory of what I think I want or better by giving the right meaning to the lessons, the right lessons of my past, and then prioritize accordingly. See, prioritization is powerful because it's a recognition and a confirmation you know it's important to you aligned with where you think you wanna be or better. It's an antidote to feeling overwhelmed. It's an antidote to procrastination. And it allows you to do one thing, prioritization, instead of searching for a why, it allows you to apply it. It is a confirmation that you have an appreciation of the future, a faith that there's something bigger than you that loves you more than your mom, that's protecting and promoting you, not punishing you. So when he lost, right, when it went missing, his journals, yeah. his life was missing, his codified life was his missing. His secrets, his privacy been violated. It, it violated completely, like as I felt mine was, right? right. right? I was violated, that was the biggest pain that I had to understand. Instead, he was protected and promoted. See, we just, in an omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing source, when we know it's just like our mom when we were very little and when the first time we reached out to touch a hot stove and she may never have yelled at you or even hit you at the time, slaps you harder than you can imagine and screams at you no and you immediately think what? I'm being punished. Oh my God, why'd you hit me? Why are you yelling at me? And your mom hugs you immediately and says, no baby, you just didn't know what the stove was gonna do to you. He didn't know what those journals were gonna do to him. It may have held him back. It may have put too much intention on his past. It, there's so many things. Business deals fall apart. Relationships fall apart. Health falls apart. I'm being protected and promoted. And it's amazing how I allow linear time to illustrate and reveal how I'm being protected and promoted with the simple faith. And people ask you, well, how do you believe there's something bigger than you that loves you more than your mom? Because I'm a best options guy. So if anybody out there can tell me what is bigger than that to have faith in, something better than that, I don't care what religion, philosophy, theory, or spirituality you believe in, I'll believe in it. But nobody in the world, Sadhguru, Deepak Chopra, all, Jack Canfield, all of these guys I've asked the question, hey man, can you give me something better to have faith in than something bigger than me that loves me more than my mom? And they can't come up yeah. with it. Our time is ending. I so wanted to talk about the story of that fateful flight to India. Oh, geez. Where yeah, one of your now advisors talked to you about who you are and what's getting in your way. But we don't have time for that, so we'll have to read that in the book. Thank you. But I do want to take a moment and talk about your passion about St. Jude's. Yes. I mean, who, who isn't a supporter of St. Jude's? They raise close to a billion dollars a year. But there's a philosophy they have that is, I see, um, resonant in your own life. And that's one of abundance mentality. I mean, you just reek of abundance. There's not a scarce bone in your body or your mindset. Only minutes and moments of scarcity. Every day I'm scarce just for minutes and moments. Well, and I can see in your actions and your mindset, you have what Dr. Covey, our founder, would call an abundance mindset. One of the reasons why you're so passionate about St. Jude's is because the research they do, they share. Talk about that in the final two minutes we have and why that's so important for everyone to have as almost like a governing mindset in their life. Absolutely, and it stems from their founder who had an abundant mindset. And so, yeah, 
the comedian and I'm Danny Thomas, Danny Thomas right? founded, he would take his hat off on his plane rides in the old days and he'd get on the old fashioned mic and say, my name's Danny Thomas. I'm an entertainer and I want to cure childhood cancer. 97% of the people, kids died of childhood of cancer, leukemia, of right? leukemia at the time. Right. And he would collect money in his hat being a famous comedian. And that's how this multi-billion dollar, largest, largest charity in, the, in our country was created. And in that mindset, why Warren Moon, who sickle cell, myself, why we are so indebted and, and so, you know, just try to promote and make the awareness is they truly live by, in the medical field, do you know how much money their research is worth? Forget the billions that they, they raise. If they held on to their research, that they could make, I think, more than they've raised, but they don't. They immediately post all of their findings from the billions of dollars of research up into every single medical person in the world, and they don't care if they're credited for curing cancer. They just want cancer cured. And even in the aspect of who they help, they don't just help the kid. They bring the whole family in, they pay for everything the room, the board, the family's transportation. It doesn't matter who you are. This is a true illustration of why abundance is not only appreciating what you have, acknowledging, meaning acquiring the knowledge of what you have by not having it anymore, whether it's lost, stolen, manipulated, or cheated from you, like me and our favorite author, but more importantly, to ask for more. And so no one's better as well in the theory of abundance of adding value by asking at every grocery store, every commercial, they're asking for more because the lesson that I've learned in my life that goes beyond giving to receive is that you can't give more with less. And so you need to ask for more and you only limit yourself. You can never overachieve your own self-image. So ask for more and you'll be able to give more if that's your intention. David, your energy is contagious. Your positivity is inspiring. Your book is connected to goodness. Manifest everything you desire in business and life. I'd love to come back today and just talk about the fateful flight to India and how that is such an insight that people like me that are, you know, are, are, are hardworking, we're trying to provide for our families, we're trying to, to give more, but we don't necessarily know what's getting in our way, yeah. and often it's us. So many lessons to learn from that. Thanks for your time today. You're a class act.